Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have with me Andrew Cushing. He's the Bureau Chief for the Bureau of um, Historic Sites, New Hampshire State Parks. Thank you for, um, for joining me today. Sure thing. So tell me a little bit about your background. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a New Hampshire native. And uh, after I went away to college in graduate school for historic preservation, I was kind of thinking, oh, I'm going to be really lucky if I can find something with my field uh, that allows me to live in my small town uh, and also practice my degree. Right. Um, and I've been very lucky uh, to have found a few jobs uh, doing that. So um, right now I'm in uh, the Bureau of Historic Sites for New Hampshire State Parks, which is just a subset of our parks system. So I oversee, depending on the list, 12 to 23 historic sites. Um, and then also help uh, make decisions involving any any building or structure older than 50 years old in the park system, which, okay. as the case probably with many state parks, it's most buildings. And now, right. you know, bathroom buildings from the 1960s are a hot uh, <laughs> a hot topic <laughs> at parks. So. Yeah, that's um, that's funny. I I don't I and I'm not 100 percent sure, but I I I think that Pennsylvania is still pretty like. The, the, the systems are pretty segregated. Like, I don't think that the, the natural resource people have like historic person in that there's, they still rely on the state office of historic preservation. So I think that's great that, that New Hampshire has that way. Yeah. It came out in a study um, several years ago when, so our park system is self-funded operation, operationally self-funded um, which led to uh, some big deficits a few years ago, um, 10, over 10 years ago. Um, and so one of the items that came out of this planning study was we really need to have a separate bureau for historic sites because as an operationally self-funded unit, the Franklin Beers Homestead was just never rising to the top of maintenance needs or programmatic investment. So um, the Bureau of Historic Sites was set up actually to get some general funding from our state legislature, um, which could supplement its its operations. Yeah, that really makes sense. I, there's a um, site in Southern Lancaster County that they reached out to us to go look at, and it's it's an early. I would say it's probably maybe 1800s, but that would be the latest. It never has had a bathroom or a kitchen put in it. It's just a house that got put in the middle of a state park <laughs> and they don't know what to do with it. And I'm like, well, it's in really good shape. Keep the squirrels out and, you know, wait till you have the funding. <laughs> that was yeah. my advice. <laughs> yeah. 
it, it seems to be the bar for most of our sites. Um, keep the squirrels out and we'll yeah. get to it. Yeah. And squirrels could be nasty. We're fighting with squirrels in our house. <laughs> oh, I have, I have raccoons that have infested one of my old houses that I'm not living in. Oh, record, no. But, yeah. Um, there are paw prints are everywhere. <laughs> so, so what, what, what brought you into preservation? Yeah. So actually from a very young age, I really liked architecture. Um, and my grandparents had, uh, a tavern, a former tavern built around 1790 in my town. Um, and so really from a young age, I was really fascinated by then what was, you know, kind of hide and seek opportunities. But right. as I grew older, um, I think there's a certain ambiance that really captured my imagination with the paneling or the chimneys and the fireplaces and the wide board floors. So um, when I started looking in the field of architecture, I realized that my interests wouldn't really further the field. Um, right. Certainly there are architects who specialize in designing houses that look old. Right. Um, yeah. But in it, rural yeah. areas, I think there's such a surfeit of, of old buildings that need help. So mm -hmm. why build new ones that look old when you could just have old ones that could be saved? Right. Um, so yeah, I think I just really grew into the field of historic preservation and especially how it can be combined with community planning um, and economic development. Um, it was just a nice marriage of a lot of interests yeah. for me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and I don't think that people, I don't think that, I think it's starting to get better, but I don't think the preservation community as a whole is great at touting, you know, the economic benefits of preservation where, you know, it, and there are a lot, especially for the local economy. There are a lot. I think sometimes yeah. it's really hard um, and economists have tried um, <laughs> Donovan Ripkema was a, a right. professor of mine in grad school. Um, but there, I think there's just a lot of uh, intangible economic benefits to preservation right. that you just can't quite grasp in a study. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah he, I mean, huge, obviously huge benefits mm -hmm. um, for our downtowns. Yeah, and, yeah, I was gonna say, especially for the local economy because it's not work that you can outsource and it's, it's very labor intensive, so. Yeah. yeah. And, and we might get into this later, but certainly the, the need for uh, our trades um, to move into the next generation, you know, not for the trades themselves to move into the next generation, right. but for protégés of these slaters and window restorers and stonemasons, um, huge, huge problem. Yeah, no, it is. Um, we, um, my, Jonathan, my husband, started working with my, uh, with my dad pretty soon after we started dating. My dad asked him to come help for a summer while he was in college and then he just never went back to school <laughs> but um and he he you know worked he's he's worked now in preservation almost 25 years now um and um but you know he's he's in his his late 40s and um the you know the majority of people he's still one of the youngest people on the show yeah. 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 yeah yeah and you know my dad retired a lot of people that you know we knew that we could refer people to are retiring so it is it's it's a it's a problem and i think some of it was that there was a push for everybody to go to college for a while and and yeah. not that that isn't valuable i went to college but <laughs> not it's not i don't think it's for everybody and i don't think it's necessary to be able to have skills either yeah, I mean, it's it's really so I went to a rural regional high school um, where college was encouraged, but it certainly was not, you know, everyone in our class was not aiming to go to Princeton. Right. Um, 
and my father does auto body and my brother builds stone walls. And so there's always kind of this uh, internal pull for me to, to do college um, or to work with my hands. And I've been sort of able to get kicks out of both because I have an old house that I work on and I like restoring windows on the side. Yeah. Um, but then there are days when it's uh, pouring outside and I'm kind of happy that I don't have to uh, do a patio like my brother is working on. Yeah, um, no, I, I, I completely understand that with days when it's really cold, I'm like, I'm so glad I don't have to work outside. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course there are days where we have to answer a lot of emails and attend a lot of meetings and um, I'd much rather be working <laughs> outside yes so 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 tell me um, about your work at the new hampshire bureau of historic sites yeah so uh, it's a really interesting portfolio um that we oversee um we've got everything you know we have the rocks with the plaques on them um and and a few statues um all the way up to structures so we have uh, a 1930s uh, ski jump that was uh, built uh, by the Scandinavian community in Berlin, New Hampshire, which is one of our, well, it is our northernmost city, but not the northernmost town. Right. Um, and so that's going through kind of a rehabilitation thanks to a dedicated friends group up there. Um, a really terrifying site. I mean, if you, I don't know if you like heights, but um, I start shaking in the knees when I get oh, no. <laughs> the ladder. So um, it's really terrifying to be on top of this. So you don't, you don't want to go do the jump. <laughs> And I mean, it's until the 1980s, it was operational. We're hoping to get it operational again. But I just think of, of the people who would dare right. jump off yeah, this They're thing. very brave. Uh, so that's one of our sites, which is kind of an exciting, uh, a bit of diversity. But then we also have, um, we have a colonial mansion uh, in Portsmouth um, that was home to our royal governor. Um, and then we have... Franklin Pierce's homestead. We have Robert Frost's uh, farm during his dairy years, uh, dairy New Hampshire years, which um, a lot of scholars kind of credit um, that landscape for being an impetus of, of his best writing. Yeah. Um, and then we have, you know, some covered bridge. We have a covered bridge. We've got um, we've got a lighthouse uh, off the coast, um, New Hampshire's tiny coast. We've got a lighthouse there. So it's, it's a real interesting mix uh, of places. And, you know, one day I could be, you know, off the coast of the Atlantic and the next day I could be in the White Mountains looking at a plaster job um, at a mountaintop estate. So that's really interesting. Like, I, I'm sure it gives you a lot of diversity and a lot of, you're, you know, no day is the same. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's always really fascinating. And as a Bureau of One, uh, we don't kind of have an interpretation department or education department that right. we can uh, kick some of those things to. So uh, yeah, I end up in the winter time is especially kind of our, our research and writing time. So um, to really kind of delve into that information and write interpretation plans and, and whatnot, it's, it's a good opportunity to learn a lot about our very, our diver- I'd say diverse history, but you know, New Hampshire kind of has to define diverse different ways right Um, but it is it's a it's a it's a wide variety of historic or not historic that maybe that's not the right word architectural styles and and there's diversity there yeah and and i I should add that um we 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 really do kind of fail in in telling some diverse stories so one of the sites that we have 
is it's the statue dedicated to Hannah Dustin, who was a, a colonial woman who in 1694, uh, uh, I'm forgetting the date. Um, I don't remember number, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she was taken captive um, from her home in Haverhill, Massachusetts, and brought somewhere to New Hampshire along the Merrimack River, mm-hmm. um, where she retaliated against her captors and, and ended up scalping um, 10 Native Americans, including six children. Oh, goodness. Um, and in 1874, kind of at the tail end of this Manifest Destiny era, we dedicated a statue to her. And so now, you know, kind of post George Floyd, post, right. you know, a lot of kind of racial reckoning in America, we're looking at the statue and it's not it's not very sense. I mean, it's not accurate. First of all, right. um, it's not sensitive to Abenaki um, in New Hampshire, where we really don't have any statues um, or commemoration of. Right. So this is kind of our one site where we're looking at. We, we should do better, and it, it is tough. It's really tough to have those conversations, and mm-hmm. I, I think. Um, Has there been pushback? Have there been people who want to leave the statue up? Yeah, so from the get-go, we've tried to incorporate, so Hannah Dustin was a prolific um, child bearer, so she has a lot of descendants, and her family um, has been involved in some of this decision-making. You know, the the Abenaki community is not a monolithic block, so um, some have said, you know, the statue just has to go. It's it's a stain on on our history. And we've had some who said, well, maybe it can stay, but we can reinterpret it or we can do better about um, an additive approach. Right. So, um, and then you add kind of a department with no money. Um, <laughs> and so you want to do the best thing. Right. Um, but it's these, these things are hard when it's not just a, a New Yorker piece. Um, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and I think that the, my my default would be to try to tell the whole story wh- whatever that story is mm-hmm. um rather than to try to just say we're not gonna we're not going to um uh, we're not going to interpret it at all we're just gonna you know take it down and put it in storage i think telling the whole story is it it gives people something to reflect on something to think about yeah absolutely i mean if it can yeah. be done right and if it can be done kind of honestly and um wholeheartedly i mean i think having something there that forces you to think about why this is wrong or why this is incomplete can also be powerful um so we're trying to figure out how how to do that that's a challenge i i i i I, i'm glad that you brought that up because i think it's a challenge that a lot of historic sites and organizations are are working to 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 be more inclusive, but it's hard. It's hard to have those conversations. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. And I think it's, it's hard too, when our field is not historically diverse. So um, we're being forced, forced to think about it. And um, you hope that it, it then forces us to include more voices in our decision. Yeah. No. And I think that that's great that you brought all of those people that would, would be indirectly but directly affect it you know and because i think that that's important to hear their their opinions also yeah i i I think that that's i think that's really really a good thing i'm um i don't i don't have the answer for you well i I was really hoping for an answer from you but uh next time yeah well i i I don't have any i don't i don't have an appropriate answer (laughs) 
<laughs> I was thinking maybe you could like reenact the massacre. No. <laughs> yeah. What's What's really interesting is well, this is less interesting, but one of our historic sites um, is is the Weeks Estate, which is this mountaintop estate in northern New Hampshire, and it's it's named for uh, a New Hampshire boy who went to Massachusetts and became a congressman and a, a mayor and, and whatnot down there, and ultimately Secretary of War. And uh, he actually lost his second Senate race in Massachusetts because um, he opposed women's suffrage, and that had become unpopular at that right. point. Um, and so it's kind of this year being the centennial of, of, of women's suffrage, thinking about, do we, you know, do we mention that to people, you know, and say, yeah. you know, we're celebrating this man's accomplishments through passing the Weeks um, Act, which allowed for the creation of the National Forest east of the Mississippi. Um, but also as a human, you know, he had some faults too, or he was not necessarily false, but he wasn't with, with the times. Right. Um, yeah. he, he, um, was, he was definitely more traditional. No, I, and I think, I think that those things are definitely the things that, because people are, people, I think the more that I like learn about history and about people, people really haven't changed that much. Like oh, I have, yeah. I have a book that's like, um, classifieds from the Lancaster newspaper from the late 1700s. So it's like, um, I got it because it had a lot of runaway slaves because I was researching slavery in Lancaster County. So it has runaway slaves, runaway apprentices and runaway wives. This is the, the theme of the book. And, you know, and it's, and it's like, um, and it's just different, different classified listings. And it's, it was their Facebook. Like there was, there is one, the guy's like, I don't know why my wife left. I'm sure he did. I don't know oh, yeah, why, I don't yeah. know why she left, but I'm not paying for anything else for her. He put that in the paper and like, and, and, you know, it was just like, they were running down the newspaper to put, to, to make sure people had their side of the story. Yeah. Yeah. So I, people have not changed much. And I think to tell the whole story, like, so he did really good things. He, he helped, you know, conservation, but then on one issue, he was really out of step with where we are now and really where people were even then. And I think that that's important to, to see the full picture because people people are human and, and, and make mistakes. I mean, the conversation around the founding fathers and you know the, the, the tension there with them calling for liberty for all and most of them owning slaves. Yeah. Um, and fathering children with, you know, fathering children with slaves and, you know, all of these things. I think that it, instead of just pretending they were perfect, if we talk about them as humans, it actually makes them more relatable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people haven't changed that much. That, that book is hilarious. It makes me giggle <laughs> when I read yeah. you know, the, the one, the one that really made me laugh was that it said, if he said that his apprentice ran away, he's lying because his apprentice, he told his apprentice to leave. I was standing there. <laughs> so people are all the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of my first, um, I've written quite a few uh, historic register nominations and school schoolhouses um, are always really interesting because first of all, there's just a lot of information about them in right. town reports, but the comments from parents and teachers and school boards in 18, you know, 82 right. are the exact same as they are now complaining about, you know, kids being tardy or absent from school all the time, teachers demanding that parents speak nicely of them at the house because it doesn't help them instruct their kids yeah. if they're being spoken poorly of back home. Um, you know, towns complaining that schools cost too much and schools complaining, well, you know, 
we have broken windows and no water. So <laughs> you have to invest in education. You know, it's just really right. interesting that it is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's just every, uh, the, the technology changes, but people are the same. <laughs> yeah. We haven't changed that much. Uh, so um, I, I had reached out to your Nora did about um, the presentation that you did um, for, um, I was at historic New Hampshire about house history. So um, can, uh, what, what do you, what can you find out when you, when you uh, research um, house history? Yeah, so uh, one of my colleagues in New Hampshire and I um, do occasional presentations for the New Hampshire Preservation Alliance, which is our statewide um, preservation advocacy group. Um, and house history has has been an, uh, in a popular topic um, for a lot of uh, our constituents here. Yeah. And I think the this doesn't quite get to your point, but I no, think that's fine. <laughs> to, to give some back, I mean, everyone in New Hampshire, maybe New England, or maybe even the Northeast, I'm, maybe it's the same in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. uh, they all think their house is 1780 and, you know, it was on the Underground Railroad. And, you know, there's certain kind of like a checklist of things that people assume their old house mm -hmm. is. Yeah. Um, and there's often a lot of Underground Railroad stories here. <laughs> yeah, I, especially I bet yeah. Um, yeah. where you are. So it's fun to kind of just start with those misconceptions and work on like, how do you know, set that aside um, right. and look at, you know, the physical evidence of your house um, and has it evolved? Is it fairly intact? Um, look at some of the, the social history side of your house, you know, who, who lived there? How did they afford the changes they made if they made them? Um, and, and then, you know, what's, you know, how does it kind of tie into broader narratives, either about your region, your state, or the nation. Um, and so I, I just think old houses are really, can be really fascinating because they can tell us so much about um, kind of small, small details about a larger picture. Yeah, uh, one thing that's interesting about um, Lancaster architecture regionally is that it's, you can't use, like, sometimes you can't use, like, the, the, like the checklist of like this house style because we're, we're about 15, 15 years behind Philadelphia. So whatever they yeah. were doing in Philadelphia, Lancaster was about 15 years behind that. Yeah. And in New England, settlement patterns were not always how you'd expect. So just because you're in say interior New Hampshire doesn't mean that the earlier settlers were coming from Portsmouth right. on the seacoast. They might've been coming up the Connecticut River Valley from Connecticut, Massachusetts. So they're bringing those particular styles and tastes with them. Yeah. Um, we have that too. Um, we have the Susquehanna River. You went, you went to school in Philadelphia, so I don't know if you ever yep. came over this way. But um, we have the Susquehanna River that separates Lancaster and York County. Well, York County and that side of the river is much more influenced by uh, Baltimore than by hmm. than by Philadelphia. So it's it is it's it's a pattern and and what was easy to get around, you know, because you had the waterway between you. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So you yeah you get it obviously. Um, um, so, um, so do you, when you're, when you're helping people to research us or when you're doing the presentation, do you, um, do you go like through the different house histories or how do you, how do you kind of guide them into, into finding this information out? Yeah. So there are a few, um, I mean, just having a, a general knowledge of kind of architectural history and, um, kind of development patterns in your area helps a lot. Right. Um, but then there are, some, I guess, some staple um, staples in, in the research world that really help um, pinpoint some dates for your house. So, 
uh, we have various kind of cadastral maps um, in New Hampshire in the 19th century uh, that were made. Um, so essentially just maps that have a dot on where your house is or was oh, yeah. uh, with names associated with it. Um, and then the, probably with any American city, you know, the Sanborn fire insurance right. maps are really helpful for more urban areas or areas that have industrial development. And having, so I'm trying to think of other states where the 1890 census records were lost in the fire. Of, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that, but would that give you, does that have some, did the 1890 census, do they have information to house history information? Well, so it's, it's really, so some of these cadastral maps in New Hampshire are, are, one is done in 1892. So it's really okay. kind of the only stand-in for that uh, census that's information yeah. that's missing. So um, it's kind of unfortunate decade because it's a really interesting decade um, for a lot of development because it's, it's um, you know, it's at the turn of the century. Um, and a lot of these rural communities are, are declining, but our urban communities and industrial communities are, are ever increasing. Right. Um, and so you kind of miss this really key decade. Um, to see where and people are it, moving to and from. Yeah. yeah. Um, but otherwise, you know, deed and census information is, is interesting. It's, I would say house history is, is not often a very precise um, exercise. And I think I've, I would say I've met a lot of people who really just want the exact date right. of their house. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just can't offer that because you don't know if houses, you know, have moved there or moved offsite. Sometimes you have an L that was uh, originally your house that was moved to the back and a newer right. portion was built on the front. Um, and then that L disappears over time. So it's, it's never quite as clean as you, right. as you want well, it and, to be. And I know something that I noticed looking at outbuildings is oftentimes they um, reuse, like there's, it's, it looks like a, an early 1900s barn, but there's hand hewn beams in there. So you know that those beams came from somewhere else. So like the reuse of materials can sometimes throw off those clues. Yeah, or you might have an outbuilding on your property that has plaster inside it. And you're thinking that's kind of strange. Why would they plaster, you know, right. the cobbler shop portion of their property? And it's probably because it was originally the L of the house or, or the house itself and it got right. moved and kind of downgraded. Um, so it's no site, very few sites are, um, or I should say every site is unique. Let yeah, me make it a, a positive that statement. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is true. And, um, yeah, I, I was, uh, I was talking to a woman a couple of weeks ago and she was asking me about her property and she said, well, do you, are there, were there built, were there, um, uh, building permits? I'm like, no, not until at yeah. least the 1920s. <laughs> so we can't just go pull a permit and see what they did. <laughs> yeah. I remember doing research for projects in Philadelphia and there just being so much, um, material because they did have building inspections right. and yeah. um, much better maps. And if Pennsylvania is a far better kind of organizer of its deeds than New Hampshire is. And so they, I, I'm pretty sure this is true, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are kind of breadcrumbs at the end of every deed in Pennsylvania. So it'll say, even in the 18th century, you know, see book 420 oh, yeah. page yeah, there seven are, so that you can go to the, the actual book. Yeah. The physical. In New yeah. Hampshire, we maybe started doing that in the 1940s. Oh no. Um, <laughs> and so it's a lot of going back and forth between the grantee grantor index, 
we d- we're very slow on digitizing any of our records in New Hampshire. And so um, you really have to spend a day in the county offices and that's been tough in the pandemic. Oh yeah. And when they're closed. So it's, um, <laughs> that, yeah, it, it sounds like a, a little bit of a struggle, but it's, it's interesting that I just, I guess I just would make assumptions that everybody does it the same, but you know, every, all the States want to be independent and do their own way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, what, um, what mistakes would you, um, want people to avoid when they're researching their house history? Or what would you encourage? Yeah, I think it probably goes back to my first point is mm-hmm. to at least start your process erasing any uh, suppositions or biases you might have um, about your house. If you were told by the realtor that it is a 1776 house and you know so-and-so war general lived there from the revolution, mm-hmm. uh, you know, take it with a grain of salt and, and prove that before. I mean, I've run into so many cases where um, good intentioned families really believe that the information they've been told either by their ancestors or whatever is, is accurate. Right. But then when you look at the data, you even just look at the building and, and you're trained to see, wait a second, that's a Greek revival, you know, mm-hmm. entablature, or these windows definitely don't, um, don't reflect, you know, an 18th century construction or whatever right. it might be. Yeah. Um, you, you could be really crestfallen, I think, if you find out that your house is not well, as old or special as you yeah, A lot of things you can't really prove, like the Underground Railroad. There's not documentation. You know, there, you know, there, you, just because you had like a cistern or whatever it was, doesn't mean that that was a hiding place. <laughs> right. Yeah. A hatch down to your basement. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I think that's tough, too. If you just can't pinpoint or especially, you know, who built your house. That's right. really tough to prove. Um, I was just actually, I'm kind of the local, I've become this local guy um, in my area for salvaging windows or doors or anything from houses that people are tearing down, which is, it's kind of like being a funeral director for, uh, for old buildings. And and my barn back home is filled now with (laughs) windows and shutters and doors. But um, this one house was a plank house, which. um, That's early then in New England, isn't it? Yeah, you know, 1800 to 1830 is kind of the peak plank house building. Um, And when they started removing the interior finishes on the wall was scrawled with chalk. Um, This home built by Justin, or uh, I think Justin Campbell, 1820, the same year he got married. And that's kind of like the, that's the holy grail of of house histories is to have that really neat information. Um, That is. It's, I, I've yeah, it's exciting when you can find things like that. Yeah. 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 Really, yeah. really is. Yeah. The, um, I was picking up sash on Saturday and as I was trying to get it all in the van around Jonathan's tools, I was thinking, yeah, I am the lady that like stops on the side of the road and makes up sash. Yeah. We need bumper stickers that say I break for salvage. Um, um, but we, 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 well, I'm sure you do too. We reuse the glass when we're restoring windows. Yeah. Yep. So, um, so is there anything else about house history that you think that you want to share um, that maybe I didn't think to ask you about? Um, boy, um, yeah, I just, I, you know, I, I would say that, I, I don't know, this, this is not going to be helpful for listeners, but I mean, I've gotten much better at, at learning to read buildings mm-hmm. um, just through 
you know, years and years of taking apart buildings, which is right. not what I recommend for people to also learn, but right. um, yeah. it just really connects you to, you know, building construction, you know, when you can see the styles of nails change um, in parts of a house, or if yeah. you can see um, how wood is cut differently through different decades, um, it, it just kind of, you know, it improves your, your eyesight. I mean, you can just get a better sense and gut for how houses because I think the building you know there's physical evidence that helps you date your house and then there's like I said like the social history and kind of the paperwork right. side of things yeah. um and it's just really nice when those two collide so you can see maybe in a in a d change or whatever you know if a house has finally left the family that's had it for 50 years right. and a new family takes over and, and that they're also probably to upgrades. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then suddenly, oh, there's a new kitchen or, the, you know, the windows have been replaced to two over twos or um, a new barn has come. And then when you can then tie that to the agricultural census and you can see that, yeah, in 1850, they started orcharding and they started um, buying cows or, you know, milking cows. Um, it's just, it's always a really kind of exciting moment when you get to you have to kind of live it a little bit. You get right, to see yeah. that, oh yeah, these people are trying to invest in their property, but also trying to compete with like the Midwest farms um, that are just, New Hampshire just hemorrhaged young people uh, oh, yeah. around the civil war time to, to the West. Um, yeah, I, I think that they were from the, the from Northern um, New York, but, or upstate New York, but the, um, the I just read a book about uh, the, uh, Ingalls family, you know, from Little House in the yeah, Park. Yeah. And they they came from New England and went west. So yeah, it was the same time period. Yeah, exactly. And they kind of kept moving west if I remember. I mean, yeah, so they, they went did, to yeah. I didn't actually read the series, yeah. but they, um, they my ended up did. in South they ended up in South Dakota and they there was another group of them that wanted to go further west into Oregon, which probably would have been better than surviving the droughts in South Dakota, but they were like, We're not moving anymore. <laughs> yeah. Because they made a pit stop in Wisconsin. Yeah, they did. Too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so a really good kind of, you know, national example or local trend of national. Yeah, so that's, what am I trying to say? Yeah, yeah. That, that's, 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 that's interesting to me, though, because I, um, yeah, the, the farms here, like even, even, even in Pennsylvania are much smaller than they are in the Midwest. So I'm sure that that, that more land and more space was a big draw. Yeah, um, really, really enticing, especially, I mean, the soil in New Hampshire is really kind of crummy oh, um, yeah. or, or very little of it is is productive and arable so yeah. if you are in a family that has seven other brothers who are interested in keeping on the family farm and you know you're just going to be tilling around rocks and dealing with our cold winters um why not move to ohio yeah, indiana why not try yeah try, try something new yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. that um that idea of it's it'll be better <laughs> it'll be better when you get there Right. Um, I'm not. I'm not so sure. Um, I, I'm not so sure that that I would have. I would have liked that journey. But my dad's family went uh, went west. They 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 came to Pennsylvania first. And then they went to uh, Missouri. But within a generation, they were they were on the Oregon Trail and going further west. And mm. I I um, I wouldn't have wanted to make that journey. I'm glad I can fly. <laughs> yeah, we all we know how the Oregon Trail went. We played right. that game. Yeah. We, <laughs> throwing my piano off the off the <laughs> wagon <laughs> yeah so um 
what uh, and you kind of talked a little bit about it, but are there um, any other trends or challenges that you see in preservation? Boy, no challenges. It's such an easy field. Um, yeah, um, I would say trend wise, you know, I think we are getting better as a field, telling more complete stories, um, roping in uh, more diverse voices. Um, you know, the National Trust certainly seems to have made a concerted effort. They are. Um, and how they fund projects um, and what stories they tell. Mm -hmm. And, you know, certainly you hope, I think the challenge is doing it for a couple of years doesn't make a difference. Like it has to be right. a long sustained effort. Yes. Yeah. Because it's a generational shift that we need. Right. So yeah. um, I yeah, hope I was, that. I was thinking about that. Um, maybe it was last night. I don't remember. It was sometime over this weekend, though, that I was thinking about the story. Oh, because there was in York County, uh, there was a big uproar because the school board had banned a bunch of books. It made the national news. So they reversed it the next day. And um, it was on the news and Jonathan and I were talking about it. One of the books they banned was about Rosa Parks. And I was thinking about like the stories that I learned when I was in school, you know, 30, 35 years ago about she was as tired, she sat down. It wasn't that she was part of this whole movement and had been trained to do this. Like it was just, she was tired, she didn't want to get up. So, you know, it was very passive. Yeah. <laughs> and so the, yeah, the, the way we tell the story really matters. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, so, um, so yeah, I do. I think that what we teach and what we tell, how we interpret sites really does it, you, you need, you need a whole generation to kind of learn, learn, learn that way so that it's not shocking to them when they hear, hear, you know, more, more, more honest accounting of, of, of the history. Yeah. And I think it sounds like try or it doesn't sound very nice to say like this is also a business decision that we need to make i mean we're seeing attendance at museums and historic sites decline right um and as america diversifies uh we, you know we you need to start doing you know if you want your museum to have better attendance people then you should probably invest in the things people that need people to see want their, their own their own they need to to be invested in it they need to see themselves in the stories yeah and, and i had I, I think i heard it on npr but a third of the a third of the um um uh the people at yorktown were were black either either you know enslaved or formerly enslaved that's not the vision we have of the revolutionary war you know like no. to tell that story and to to say from the founding everybody was work, you know working together whether they were equal or not that everybody was at least in it together and I think that, that that's a much, um, it's, it, it's, it, it, makes, it makes people realize, oh, this is my country too. You know, yeah. and I, I think that that's really an important, um, an important lesson for, for everybody to, to feel like they have a stake in, in what, what happens. Yeah, and, and probably kind of relate to that. I mean, the promises that were broken um, at those major milestones in American history, um, that's, that's a pretty remarkable. Um, yeah. And, and sad thing for, you know, it's, yeah, it's, for, you know, if a third of the troops were black to not have, to not deliver on some of the kind of the hopes that they were yeah. um, promised. Yeah. Um, yeah. For, for another, what, 50, 60 years. <laughs> yeah. 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 And even then um, it was Rocky. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, well, I, I 
thank you so much for your time today. I really, I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, if someone's interested in, in reaching out to you, how can they contact you? Yeah, so uh, I, well, our, my state email is kind of long and ridicu ridiculous okay. and has many things, so I can write that down for you. But um, yeah, um, available by email or phone call. Okay, email. Uh, what we'll do is we'll make sure that we have, um, have it on our website, and then people can just go to that where the where the podcast is and then click through uh what um uh, let me see what is your phone number though yeah so it's uh 603-271-3238 okay very good and i'll make sure your email is up also um and then if you um and then uh well thank you so much for 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 your time today i i appreciated it and i enjoyed our conversation i'm i'm glad that i'm glad we were able to connect and 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 do this Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.